listed there, but to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. As I was saying earlier, um, it occurred to me, and not until this morning, obviously, that each time we study the triumphal entry, we end up having an exhortation to praise after the time that we as a congregation have had our main activity, which is at the beginning of the service. And that's kind of twisted. Um, So if we're going to learn how to worship, it's good to do it at the beginning of the worship service so that as we go into singing, as we go into the other parts of the service, um, we have been taught. The same thing is true of the Lord's Supper. We have a mini-sermon, what Kirk Bristol once said to me, you know, do you have to preach two sermons every time we have the Lord's Supper? Um, But we have a second sermon before the Lord's Supper, again, so that we can take the Lord's Supper properly. Well, if we're going to give ourselves, especially to music this morning, we saw the children, let's go and look at what happened, and then let's do it, mimic it, uh, model ourselves after it, having heard that exhortation. So in Luke 19, we find the account of the triumphal entry, and that's what we're celebrating this morning. It's uh, what we call Palm Sunday, and let's read the account of what happened, beginning with verse... um, Beginning with verse, no, well, there you have it. Uh, (laughs) Is that you laughing, Jay? (laughs) Beginning with verse 28. Okay, Luke 19, beginning with verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethage and Bethany near the mount, that is called all of it, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet, no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling. Saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer. 
but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. This is the word of the Lord. Now, how good it is for a gathering of people to get caught up in worship. And I begin this morning by asking whether you have ever had that experience. Have you ever had the experience of being so caught up in worship that you don't remember yourself? You don't even think about yourself. Do you know what it is for the Holy Spirit to overwhelm your heart with good things so that you cannot keep your mouth closed? You cannot keep your body still. You have to allow your lips to praise God out of the overflowing of the abundance of your heart. Now, if you have never had this experience, you've missed one of the greatest blessings which God can give. And I don't in any way think that by saying that you should have this and telling you how good it is this morning that it will happen to you. But I do believe that it is something that you should desire and that you should aim your life at, to forget yourself and to think of Jesus. Now, there's absolutely nothing that can compare to the feeling of total joy and exhilaration when we are lost in worshiping our Savior Jesus Christ. I would give anything, and I hope you would too, to be able to go back 2,000 years in time to the part of the parade that we're celebrating today. And it was a wonderful, wonderful parade. You think of what a contrast it is to the 4th of July parade here in Bloomington. <laughs> Those who know the Lord sit there and gnash their teeth at some of the floats and the exhibits that go by. Well, there's nothing mixed about this parade, about this celebration. Uh, it's just a thing of great beauty. The people finally, finally got it right. And they gave glory to Jesus Christ and, and there was no restraint in that glory, that praise. They pulled out, if you've ever play, played an organ or been next to somebody playing a real organ, they pulled out all the stops. They were all pulled out. Um, but the parade was short. But during it, Jesus was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, what we need to realize is we hear again this story of the triumphal entry of Jesus into the royal city of Jerusalem, which is what we celebrate as Palm Sunday, is that this is a one-of-the-kind happening in the life of Jesus. This was not what he lived. It was completely unique. It was a one-of-a-kind. There was only one time during his life when the people did get it right and lost themselves in singing his praises. And so there has to be a special significance attached to this day. Why did Jesus allow this parade when for the rest of the life he was so careful to avoid the path of public acknowledgement and praise and he was so careful to keep people from getting uh, even more caught up in worshiping him and following him than they already were. Remember how many miracles after he got done doing them he said to the people, he said, make sure you don't tell anyone. And it didn't do any good. They always went ahead and told anyhow. But Jesus was careful to keep this day from coming until it was time for this day. And you can see that all through the Gospels. But then there's another question here. Why did it happen here finally? 
And then the other question is, why did the Pharisees get so upset? We're always used to having the Pharisees upset, um, but we don't stop and ask, what are they angry about? What is it that has them upset? Now, before we go into these specific questions, let me ask this question of you. Um, If you were to describe your view of heaven, what do you think heaven is? How would you describe it? What's heaven? Now, immediately, we all think of grace, right? Uh, Grace, the woman that's gone, married to Andy, and she has, like, strawberry blonde hair, and she sits up on the platform and plays a harp. (laughs) So grace is heaven, right? Well, we all laugh because we think, well, no. I mean, you know, no. All right, so what is heaven? It's not clouds and strawberry blondes playing harps, right? So what is heaven? Would heaven have a man playing a harp? No. All right. Um, Is it like guys with long flowing robes like Jesus wore with blue sashes uh, talking about their investments and how they did? Hello? Is that on? Uh Now I know what he did. Keep my hands out of my pockets. Um, So what is heaven? Is heaven a great trout stream where you're fishing with your son? Is heaven your husband wanting to go out to a nice romantic restaurant with you instead of a steakhouse? Is heaven having your husband come home from work and talking to you? Uh, Or is heaven walking through an endless garden? Okay, what do all those things have in common? They have in common the fact that all of them are pretty trite. I mean, they're beautiful when they happen, but they're not heaven. Well, if you think of the world's view of what is the greatest good that it can get, you think of what is the world's idol, what is the world's God, I want to read, and this is a little bit of a stretch, but I want to read something I was reading a couple years ago that really struck me as getting our world right, all right? This is uh, from an article titled, Wayward Intellectual Finds God, okay? And it's about a guy named Leon Weiseltier, who's a longtime columnist for the New Republic and a leading intellectual of the Eastern Seaboard. And he says this, quote, He says, I think people live doubly, triply, and more, and they should. What matters to me is that one identifies one's genuine obsessions, one's genuine commitments, one's appetite. One pursues them seriously and far. He says, I think people live doubly, triply, and more, and they should. What matters to me is that one identifies one's genuine obsessions, one's genuine commitments, one's appetite, and that one pursues them seriously and far. Now, isn't that true? Okay, so what's your appetite? I mean, what is it? What is it that you think about and meditate on that when you go to bed and when you get up in the morning holds your heart. That's your appetite. That's your obsession. That's what he calls your genuine commitment. 
I'm very fond of the statement, no man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. Okay? So meditate on this a little bit. And then let me ask you this. When you come into worship on Sunday morning, have you finally arrived at your genuine appetite? And I, people, we have to admit, no, most of us haven't. Thank you, John. I mean, John knows the truth. That's what I, I love about John. You know, we don't come here panting because this was what the week led up to. Now, I don't mean to say that you are not a Christian, that you don't love Jesus. But I do mean that we have not devoted ourselves to pursuing Jesus as a passion. You know what I'm saying? The greatest descriptions of happiness in history do not come from the winning of a Super Bowl. They don't come from the winning of the Final Four. They don't come from any sports. They don't come even from finally uh, getting rid of the occupying force when a nation is done with captivity. Even though those things are great joy, but the greatest descriptions of happiness in history are what? What are they? Well, you could call Palm Sunday one of them. They're revivals. When revival hits, it's pure happiness because the Spirit of God is poured out on the people and they get it right. And there is absolutely no competition between the desires of their hearts and the desire of God's heart. Now, what does God's heart desire? Huh? God's heart desires that he is glorified and it's not twisted selfishness and egotism for him. When God desires that he be glorified, he is doing what he's made to do. Now, he isn't made. I'm, I'm, I'm committing heresies. But it's what God is. All right, That's a better way of saying it. And so when we give him praise, and the praise isn't insincere and it's not double-minded, that's called a revival because he's poured his spirit out on us and there's no dissonance. There's not that as you're driving a car on the interstate, you know, where the car next to it is slightly lower or higher in RPMs. All right? It's just smooth. It's a clear tone, and God is glorified. And what does Scripture say when that tone isn't clear, when there's dissonance? What does Scripture say when there's a difference between what our lips and what, our, what we're doing in the exterior and what is in our hearts? Scripture says, away from me with your worship, with your sacrifices, with your bowls, with your, with your talk. Away from me. I cannot abide it. That's what God says. And so here we see on this morning, 2,000 years ago, that Jesus is on a highway. He's being glorified. Uh, you've got all the people's clothes on the ground in front of him, on the donkey underneath him. Uh, palm branches, you've got the whole shebang. And he's on the highway into Jerusalem. And where does this highway end? It ends on the cross. So it is fitting that the Son of God is glorified as he comes to the end of his life, which is on the cross. All right. So the story begins with Jesus sending his disciples to fetch a donkey so that as he came into the royal city, he would have a position of honor. Now, um, it is true that if Jesus had wanted to give himself the glory that was his due, he would not have driven into Jerusalem uh, 
in a BMW, but rather a Rolls Royce. So a donkey is more analogous to a BMW or to a, a Lexus, but it's not the Rolls Royce, all right? And the, ho- the horse would have been that. So even in the times that he chooses to be glorified, there is a restraint to it. Um, in other words, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, humble on the foal of a donkey. Now, he wouldn't have had any trouble getting his hands on a horse because you see that he doesn't have any trouble getting his hands on a donkey. They go off. They take the thing. The owner says, what are you doing? That's my donkey. And they say, the Lord has need of it. I love that little statement, the Lord. Not a Lord. The Lord has need of it. So Jesus Christ gets on this donkey and approaches Jerusalem and he comes as a king, king of kings and lord of lords. The, the, the Jews had been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years and they knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They know every place where they found a description of that Messiah promised by God and they knew that one such place was Zechariah 9.9 where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. So they knew that God, by the word of the prophet Zechariah, had told his people clearly what to look for. So Jesus Christ here fulfills the word of God, the prophecy concerning himself. He keeps God's word from being broken. He enters into Jerusalem, and this is a claim, clearly, that he's the Messiah. As I read this this morning, I thought of uh, those who, through time, and one man in particular, have worshipped with us, who do not believe in the Trinity and do not believe specifically in the divinity of Jesus Christ. And you ask yourself, how does Jesus Christ allow this to happen? And then, at the end, when he's confronted by the Pharisees, how does he say what he says to the Pharisee? if he is not God. Did you see that at the end? He says this. They say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answers, verse 40, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. That sounds seriously troubled if he is not God, doesn't it? And then, when he approached Jerusalem, verse 40, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies, and look at the terrible things he's saying are going to happen to them. And that doesn't make him God. But then look at the end of verse 44 and see why it is that he says these terrible things will come on them. And it's because, what? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. It's so focused on himself. And this is why Lewis points out that he's a madman, a lunatic, or he's speaking the truth. But you certainly can't take this text and take the doctrine that Jesus isn't God. So he comes in and he enters Jerusalem as a king and the people shout their praises. Verse 38 says that they were shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And even in their own words, how they worship Jesus, we see their respect for the Bible because these words are taken straight from Psalm 118, verses 26 and 27 that say, 
Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And so here they are repeating this verse from the Old Testament. Again, they are a people attuned to the book, all right? And so the people worship Jesus, but not so the Pharisees. We have an easy time remembering the adoration of the crowds this day, but maybe not so easy a time remembering that here as always, there were men condemning Jesus for his actions. The righteousness of Christ rarely escapes controversy. And so here again, Jesus was taken to task by the Pharisees. Now, who were the Pharisees? Well, think about this. The Pharisees were those who had been appointed by God. They were the religious leaders, you know, the priests, the scribes, the Sanhedrin. They were the people who were appointed to do what? What was their job? They were appointed to lead the people in their praise of God. And so, yes, it's bad that they're opposing Jesus simply because of who he is. But what's particularly bad is that they are opposing the very thing that their whole lives are supposed to be given over to. That namely, serving the people by leading them in worship. They hate it. They demanded that Jesus silence his followers' praise. Now, at the heart of the Pharisees' demand for silence were a number of different thoughts and fears. A couple of them occur to us immediately because they're so constantly present in the confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. First, they realized that the praises of the people and the actions of Jesus were claims that Jesus was the Messiah. The Pharisees never did believe, although it does say in Acts that a number of them did come to believe in Acts. But the Pharisees were constantly opposed to this claim. Anytime Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, directly or indirectly, the Pharisees condemned him for it, and they called it blasphemy. And so that was their first reason for demanding silence. Since Jesus wasn't the Messiah, it was wrong for him to be treated as the Messiah. But more basic than this issue of whether or not he was the Messiah was they felt that Jesus, out of humility, should not allow such a radical demonstration of religious fervor. In fact, often, public acts of worship draw such criticism. Even today, people look at acts of uninhibited worship as inappropriate. They say that true humility would keep people from being so outspoken in their praises. Think, for instance, and the classic case in all of Scripture, the one I use every Palm Sunday, is what? Yeah, it's, it's obviously David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and dancing and peeling off some of his clothes and then the confrontation with Michael when he gets home. In 2 Samuel 6, we read, Thus the Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now, it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. 
So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. And so they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent, which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all departed each to his house. Okay, now, stop for a second. And from what I have just read... Tell me, what was their worship like that day? What were the elements? Okay, they took their wealth and they sacrificed it every six paces. All right, it would be like every six paces taking one of your IRAs and burning it. Okay? <laughs> All right, what else did they do? They danced, right? And how did they dance? They danced with, David danced with all his might. In other words, he was flopping down on the sidewalk and hopping up and bouncing from side to side. All right? So you have dancing, you have the burning of the animals, their wealth. What else do you have? Okay? You have David who's leading it giving gifts of food and, and treasures, wealth, again, to all the people. Remember, it says he distributed to all the people, verse 19, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. So three cakes to everybody. All right. What else do we see? Well, he didn't just dance. He leaped. He leaped into the air. He was, he was leaping in the air. What else? Well, we see that at the center of it all is the Ark of the Covenant of God, the Ark of the Presence of God. So at the center of their joy is the presence of the Lord. All right? And it's not just David, but it's all the house of Israel. And what else? Well, certainly, they were shouting, they were carrying on, and it says that David stripped off most of his clothes. So now, think of, think of this scene. It is a scene. In fact, it's a scene that's much like the triumphal entry, right? One thing that you can't do as Jesus walks into Jerusalem is be unaware of it. All right? R.A. Torrey says on this text, he says, we are to understand by the expression about David's clothes that he had divested himself of his royal robes in order to appear humble before the Lord by assimilating himself to the condition of one of the priests or Levites. And then Matthew Henry says, David then returned to bless his household, to pray with them and for them and to offer up family thanksgiving for this national mercy. And so we read verse 20, when David returned, but, I should put in the word but, but when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, and here's his wife's words, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. I mean, none of us have any trouble of hearing that, right? 
how the king of Israel, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants. Think of how clothes spoke office and status back then much more than today. He distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. And so you see that the Pharisees are carrying on much like Michael. And so David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father. <laughs> what does my family have to do with it, she says. You've got to bring my family into the argument? So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house. Sounds like he's bringing Michael into the equation there. Not just your father, but all his house. That's you, woman. All right? To appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And then he says this. He says, therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. Doesn't sound like a man who has any doubt what his commitment is. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this. In other words, you think that they were laughing at me now? It'll get worse, sweetie. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. And isn't that the issue of worship? None of us. I say to you that as a pastor, and you, you might think that, again, it's... But it is true that pastors are often the most important thing we do is to protect the people from the Holy Spirit during worship. And you say, how could that be? And I'd say, because the Holy Spirit humbles us. And the one thing a congregation doesn't want is to be humiliated in worship. Preach convicting sermons, but stop short of sermons which will cause us to cry. Well, David says this, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. <laughs> now, why is he distinguished by the maids, in front of the maids? Well, it's the same reason that Jesus was honored by all the people entering Jerusalem. There are always the people who know the glory of God and who are humble enough to enter into it and to recognize it. David was not alone when he was out there. It was Michael that was alone. Now, I'm not saying there were nobody else that agreed with her. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. And then this little footnote, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. And the Holy Spirit is not committing a non sequitur there. You know, all of a sudden you have this final statement made, and where did that come from? No, that is the direct fruit of her actions and her attitudes. Michael retained what? What did Michael retain? She retained her pride. Another way of saying it is Michael got what she wanted. She wanted a husband in herself who had dignity in the eyes of the world, but not the little people. 
She wanted to maintain her status and she didn't want her husband making a fool of himself and therefore of her. And that's why she opposed him. And that's always the way worship is. If we're intent on protecting our reputation and our own pride, worship can't happen. It just can't. Because then you have a competitor for the glory of God. And God doesn't brook any competitors. God has revealed himself to us as a jealous God. And he says there can't be any competitor. You can't have it. Now, we have other examples, uh, particularly telling one is in John chapter 12. Let me read this one to you. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. You want to think of David sort of burning himself in public to the glory of God? Well, here comes Mary burning herself in public to the glory of God. She took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? The wicked are never lacking justifications, right? I mean, what a, what a self-righteous way of approaching the attack on this woman. You know, think of the poor, you know. But it says in verse 6 that he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now think about this. What he really can't stand is this extravagant demonstration of humiliation on the part of this woman. She's completely gaga for Jesus. Judas can't stand that. But he's a smart one. He thinks, well, how can I oppose it? There has to be some honorable way of opposing this. Oh, the poor, right? The poor. And then it occurs to me, and that has the added benefit of bringing more money into the coffers, which I'm skimming anyhow. And if you think Judas is not like us, you don't know yourself. This is us. We, we manage to do something evil and to compound it with another evil and to make ourselves look good as we do them both. All right? There are a number of examples of this in Scripture. Um, but again, the one that... The one that I always get a kick out of using on Palm Sunday is this one. Here is a pamphlet. I'm going to read you the title, and then I'm going to read you some excerpts from it. In past revivals in Glasgow, a small town nearby was called Cambuslang. God's Spirit was poured out in a revival in a wonderful way in the year 1742. And many, many examples could be given of similar opposition to revivals. If you know the story of the Great Awakening in the United States, you know that all the dignified pastors opposed the Great Awakening because of all of the... Uh, and there were many things that were very strange that happened there, all right? But boy, they had principles to oppose the revival of the Holy Spirit. Well, back in 1742, we see a revival coming to Cambuslang. It affects the hearts of all the people. Uh, William McCulloch, the pastor, gives us a, a description of the wonderful works of God there. In the years 1740 and 41, the years before the revival, it was usual to have about four or 500 taking communion. But in 1742, during the revival, the number jumped to around 3,000 people. That's extraordinary. 
But there were those who opposed this work of God, and one of them published a pamphlet. And here's the title of the pamphlet. The Declaration, Protestation, and Testimony of the Suffering Remnant of the Anti-Popish, Anti-Lutheran, Anti-Prolatic, Anti-Whitfeldian, Anti-Erastian, Anti-Sectarian, True Presbyterian Church of Christ in Scotland, published against Mr. George Whitfield and his encouragers and against the work of Cambus Lang and other places. <laughs> Stephen, do you know it? <laughs> you know it, don't you? And then inside it says this, Whitfield. Now, who was Whitfield? Jay, tell them who Whitfield was. Just who was he? And he, and he started orphanages in the U.S. down in... Uh, of the Great Awakening, yeah. And the Tenants and Edwards and others came alongside. But Whitfield was just... How many people would he preach to? Yeah, people. And how far away could people hear his voice? A mile. That's what they claim. Well, anyhow, here's what this true Presbyterian church had to say about Whitfield. All right, quote: Whitfield was quote a limb of Antichrist, an abjured prolatic hireling. Abjure means to condemn, but it's intense condemnation. And prolatic is not good to Puritans and Presbyterians. And a hireling is, is what Jesus says is the false shepherd. He's the one that does it for pay. All right? A base English imposter. Now, up in Scotland, that wouldn't have been a kind thing to say. A scandalous idolater. A wild beast from the anti-Christian field of England to waste and devour the poor, erring people of Scotland. And then this is what they had to say about Whitfield's friends and followers. He says they were, quote, drinking even the poisonous puddles of prelacy and sectarianism. As far forsaken of God and as far ensnared by Satan as the children of Israel dancing around the golden calf. The whole affair of the revival, it went on, quote, looks like the time wherein the devil is come down to Scotland, unquote. Let me read, following that, this from 1 Corinthians 4. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become, says the Apostle Paul, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things even until now. Does it sound like Paul was dealing with the same things? And so as the Pharisees watched Jesus coming into the ass, they joined on with Michael. They joined on with Judas. They joined on with all the true glorious apostles in Corinth. 
And they said that this was unseemly, that it was inappropriate, that it was unbecoming, that it was too emotional. And they did their best to silence the true worship of God's perfect son. And yet of all the men on the face of the earth that day, Jesus was the only one who could ever accept such adulation and praises righteously. He was and he is the only one who is worthy of such worship. Now, let me ask today, who do we worship? One of the things I was sobered by in all the discussion about Mel Gibson's film is how easy so many of you said, well, I'm not idolatrous. But by the nature, do you think the Pharisees thought that they were idolatrous that day when they opposed this worship? No. All of us are blind to our idols. That's the nature of idolatry. We think we're doing one thing. Do you think that the Pharisees didn't think they were worshiping the true God by opposing Jesus? They were absolutely confident they were doing the right thing. And so the question is, what is idolatry? Well, listen to this. I think you'll recognize it. Halberstam quotes a man named Harry Edwards, who's a sociologist at the University of California in Berkeley, And Harry Edwards says, quote, "...wary that the self-evident achievements of black athletes cast an imposing shadow over many black youths and pull them away from careers in other fields." Halberson writes, Edwards, quote, "...nonetheless talked about Michael Jordan representing the highest level of human achievement on the order of Gandhi, Einstein, and Michelangelo." And then he added this, "...if..." He were in charge of introducing an alien being to the epitome of human potential, creativity, perseverance, and spirit. I would introduce that alien life to Michael Jordan. Now, you know that's wrong, right? And the novelist, lawyer Scott Turow, follows that with this. He says, quote, Michael Jordan plays basketball better than anyone else in the world does anything else, unquote. But on the other hand, here's Tex Winner, the old assistant coach of the Bulls, and he says this, he says, quote, I think Michael's a great, great player, but I'm not an idolater, unquote. Now, we all laugh at this because sports is a place in America where you can have idolatry and you don't need to worry about it. Because everybody has it. You know, it's a disease. It's an infectious disease. It's a public health problem. Okay? Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. I want to close by reading an excerpt from a book that I should have read 20 or 15 or however, whenever it was written. 1986. I should have read it in 1986, but I've waited until 2004, almost 20 years too late. Uh, It's called Desiring God. And I want to read a little section from this. Before I read it, I want to ask you, um, do you live, do you live to the glory of God? is your greatest good in life to give God glory? Or do you live for your children? Do you live for your boyfriend or girlfriend? Do you live for your parents? Some of you live for your parents. It's a pathetic existence. Who do you live for? Who do you exist to give glory to? 
Piper writes, consider this question. In view of God's infinite power and wisdom and beauty, what would his love to a human being involve? Or to put it another way, what could God give us to enjoy that would prove him most loving? And there's only one possible answer. And what is it? Himself. That's it. Himself. If he withholds himself from our... Do you remember what Jesus said when he was taken to task by the Pharisees? Do you remember he said, you're not going to see it anymore? What is that? That's God withholding himself. You remember when Jesus was asked why he taught in parables? Do you remember what he said? So that what? Having eyes they will not see, having ears they will not hear, else they would what? Repent. In other words, if they had eyes that saw and ears that heard, they would turn to me and they would behold me. What could God give us to enjoy that would prove him most loving? There's only one possible answer, himself. If he withholds himself from our contemplation and companionship, no matter what else he gives us, he is not loving. Now, we are on the brink of what, for me, was a life-changing discovery. What do we all do when we are given or shown something beautiful or excellent? We praise it. We praise new little babies. Oh, look at that nice round head and all that hair and her hands. Aren't they perfect? We praise a lover after a long absence. Your eyes are like a cloudless sky and your hair like forest silk. We praise a grand slam in the bottom of the night when we're down by three. We praise the October trees along the banks of the St. Croix. But the great discovery for me, as I said, came when I was reading C.S. Lewis's A Word About Praise in his book, The Reflections on the Psalms. And then he quotes from it. Lewis writes, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor, but I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers praising their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, praise of wines. Your brother brought that to a fine art. Praise of dishes, praise of actors, praise of motors and cars, praise of horses, praise of colleges. What is the one benevolence that never has trouble raising money in the United States? What is the nicest building in Bloomington? How'd that happen? I mean, the nicest one is the Outlook Foundation out on the bypass. Okay, they praise their colleges, their universities, their countries. Think of the call of America. Historical personages, they praise their children. They praise flowers and mountains and rare stamps and rare beetles. Sometimes they even praise politicians and scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks and the misfits and the malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Remember that Stevie Wonder song? 
I don't know what that is. How am I supposed to stop it? You know what it is? Anyhow, I don't think I'm doing anything. Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly general dif- uh, denying to us, excuse me, the psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole, more general, difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise does not just express, but it completes the enjoyment. It is its own appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. And Piper adds, he says, there is the solution. We praise what we enjoy because the delight is incomplete until it's expressed in praise. If we were not allowed to speak of what we value and celebrate what we love, and praise what we admire, our joy would not be full. So if God loves us enough to make our joy full, He must not only give us Himself, He must also win from us the praise of our hearts. Not because He needs to shore up some weakness in Himself, not because He needs to compensate for some deficiency in Himself, but because He loves us and seeks the fullness of our joy that can be found only in knowing and praising Him, the most magnificent of all beings. If he is truly for us, he must be for himself. God is the one being in all the universe for whom seeking his own praise is the ultimately loving act. And so that's what we have on Palm Sunday. We have the people of God joining in worshiping their Lord Jesus Christ. And if you will, a lot of what we've been trying to do in the last year as a church is to get better at this praise, this corporate praise. We've made changes in our, in our music for that end. We have changed a number of things because what we don't want is we don't want our worship to say more about ourselves than it does about God. You understand that? And what would we want to say about ourselves? We want to say that we are the true anti-prolatic, anti-papal, anti-you know, Presbyterian, two Presbyterian, Scottish Presbyterian. You know, and so we have this kind of hymn that our great, 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 great grandparents had. Would you just turn me off, please?